what we're going to charge on. And what we're looking at now is the idea of repetition. And whenever something is repeated, it's always pointing you towards the point the author's making and the theme. Always. Every time. So in, there's stories in the Old Testament that have repeated concepts, and it's the point of that particular story, it's also the point of the theme of the book, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that to you by using Joshua chapter 2. Now Joshua chapter 2 is the story of the spies, the two spies that uh, Joshua sent to spy out the land of Canaan, and they were going to, I'm sorry, the, the city of uh, Jericho. And he sent two spies to spy out the city of Jericho. And you've probably heard this story and you're familiar with it. So what the two spies did was try to be uh, inconspicuous. They tried to blend in. And so they go to Jericho and they go to the home of a prostitute. And uh, Rahab is her name. And they go into this, uh, the red light district and they go to uh, uh, a brothel. And they act like all the traveling men would have acted like in the day uh, with paganism. When, when, when nobody has a moral compass from a moral God, then uh, what you do is you live by your passions. And you all know that from your biblical teaching. And so the travelers, as they came into Jericho, would have stopped off in the prostitute's house and, and uh, uh, then they would have moved on and done their business. So when the two spies come to Jericho... They're going to be inconspicuous, and they're going to try to show up like all the other guys. And so they go into the home of the prostitute. And uh, the very next passage in Jericho is uh, very interesting because it says that someone ran to the king and told him, uh, the spies have come. Now, they tried to show up in Jericho and be inconspicuous, and they couldn't be inconspicuous uh, people were kind of expecting them, and so when they walked in, uh, a, a servant of the king shoots over and goes, they're here. So now all their human plans are failing. So their attempt at being inconspicuous didn't work, and now they're trapped. They're in the, they're in the brothel, and the king is going to send his men to capture them, and... If you're thinking biblically, you're saying in your mind, uh-oh, God's plan is in trouble. God's plan is in trouble. They're going to capture these two spies, and now, now what, right? That's what you should be thinking as you're reading through this story. What happens instead is that Rahab talks to the two spies, and I'm going to show you what she said. But she talks to the two spies and she says something to them that is theologically exceedingly important. It is weighty in terms of your understanding of God and your understanding of the book of Joshua. So here's, here's what happens and it's repeated. So in Joshua 2, it says, Before the men lay down... She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. 
So before she, they laid down for the night, and of course she hit them under the pile of flax, right, uh, on, the, on the roof. They were hiding under there. Before they actually hid under there, she said, we know you're here to conquer us. And we have this fear and dread of you, and uh, all the inhabitants of the land melt away from you. So that's, that's kind of her initial introductory statement. And then it says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, this is from a prostitute mama. She's the brothel manager, right? She's the lady running a prostitution ring in Jericho. And she, before she lays him down at night, she goes, listen, we know you're here and you're going to conquer the land and all of us are fearful. And we know that your God is God in heaven above and on the earth. Isn't that amazing from someone who never heard Scripture? She's a, she's a prostitute in Jericho. The Israelites have never been to Jericho. They've been in Egypt. She's never heard about the true God. She's never heard about the covenant. She's never read Genesis. She is a complete blank slate. And she makes that comment. I can tell you that is amazing. And it's amazing work from your God. And I'm going to prove that to you. So, at the end of that passage, the two spies then, you know, they're let down over the edge and they said, okay, we're going to spare you and everybody in the family. Just tie this red cord in the window and you'll be safe. So then they go back. Then they go back to Joshua. They escape and the king doesn't get them and they escape. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. Now notice, so let's recount what they told Joshua. Well, we were going to sneak into Jericho, so we decide to be like all the pagans, so we go to the home of the prostitute, and before you know it, the king knows we're there, and so our whole plan is blown. But there's this lady there, the head prostitute lady, and, and she hides us under these, this, this grain uh, stuff, and we're there for a long time, and then... We, she lets us down over the wall and we've got to go out to the woods and we've got to hide in the woods for three days while they searched for us when they couldn't find us. Then we were able to come back. They told them the whole story. But I want you to notice the summary that the Bible gives to everything they told Joshua. The very next verse says, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away. Because of us. The summary for all of their travels that they told Joshua, for all of the details that they gave him of their trip, the only thing that really matters to you, the reading audience, is this statement right here. We don't care what else they told Joshua. They told him this. Truly, the Lord has given all the lands into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They quoted Rahab. 
When they arrived, Rahab said, I know because I am fearful and all the inhabitants of the land melt away. And we know that your God is God in heaven and we're melted away before you. And then when the Bible actually recounts all of that, it summarizes this statement with that same repetition, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And when you read Joshua 2, you have to say to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, repetition. Three times in Joshua 2, fear and dread, melt away, we're trembling, our, our knees are weak. We've heard of what you did with Sihon and Og in the Red Sea. And you're supposed to trigger the repetition and do some biblical work. And if you read Joshua 2 and don't trigger the repetition and don't find out why that is important, you have missed Joshua 2. You've missed the point. So let's do a little work. Why is our hearts melting in fear when we heard about what you did to the two kings on the other side of the Jordan River? Why is that important to us? Well, let's go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 2, Moses was recounting their journey. So they left Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, they got the law, they came to the border of the land of Canaan, they didn't believe the 12, the 12 spies didn't believe except for Joshua and Caleb. So then they wander for 40 years and now they're back at the Jordan River and Moses is recounting the history of the people. In Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law because that whole generation died off and there's a new generation coming up that didn't know what God had said. So Moses is now recounting the book of Deuteronomy to a new generation. And he's telling them the story of coming out of Egypt and wandering for 40 years and so forth. And he said, rise up, set out from your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Now, do you remember Rahab mentioned him by name? When we heard of what you did to Sihon, our hearts melted in fear. She had never heard anything of Scripture. But she quotes this. And then says, from God, Moses says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Rahab stole Deuteronomy 2 and she never knew it. She said, exactly what God told Moses on the other side of the Jordan. He said, today you're going to go conquer Sihon. And when the word spreads, all the peoples under heaven are going to shake before you. And Rahab hijacks this passage and says, we know that your God is God in heaven above. And our hearts have melted in fear. And you, if you do your homework, read this and you go, What a God to put in the heart and the mouth of a prostitute in Jericho. A promise he gave in Deuteronomy 2 to Moses and God's people. 
so that they would hear and give the report the two spies gave. We know God gave us the land. Why? Because they're fearful of us, as God told us through Moses. Pretty good. So then you'd read on through Deuteronomy a little more, and if you did a little research, you'd come to this one. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Twice in Deuteronomy, God made a promise to the people of Israel. I'm going to put the fear and dread of you on all the people. Out of the mouth of Rahab, these two promises are repeated. You should have seen the repetition in Joshua 2. You should have said, I wonder why that's important. You should have done some research. You'd have gone back to Deuteronomy. You'd have found fear and dread, and you would have said, whoa, what a great God this is. You know how I know you'd have done that? Because when I learned that repetition was important and I started to teach Joshua, I noticed the repetition in Joshua 2. I had never noticed it before. But I found out repetition is important. And now every time I found repetition, I go, I don't know what it's there for. i got to research it. And I start going to my concordance. I start doing all my work. And, I'm, and I find why the repetition is there. And so I went from Joshua 2. I did the work to Deuteronomy. And I said, oh, geez, it's a theological lesson coming from a prostitute's mouth who's never read the Bible comes a theological lesson about God. God gave a promise to Israel that when they got to the land of Canaan, the people would be afraid of him already because they sort of heard of Sihon and his defeat. And all of a sudden, you say as an Israelite or as a soldier, I have confidence in my God. Now, I'm suggesting to you that's the point of Joshua 2. I'm also suggesting to you that if you follow that repetition to its conclusion, it will also point you to the theme of Joshua. So, Here's the theme of Joshua. It doesn't come till chapter 21. And I want you to notice the theme after it gets all developed in the book. He, he writes his theme this way. It's not an explicit theme, but it's as close to an explicit theme as you're going to find in the Old Testament. And here's what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You know why the book of Joshua is written? So that you know that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, there's this reference that doesn't seem important to us. That the fear and dread is going to fall upon them because they hear of Sihon. Then you get to Joshua 2 and all of a sudden out of the mouth of this prostitute lady comes that exact concept. And you go, whoa, that God is amazing. And then you read through the book of Joshua and you see how they conquer the land and divide the land. And, and you remember the Abrahamic covenant and you remember all that God did in Egypt and bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them through the wilderness wandering and you bring them all the way over here and you say to yourself, here's a God who can keep his word and not one of his promises fail. Not one. And that, my friends, is a good thing. 
Because God has promised you eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if his word fails, so do you. The hope we have for eternal life is the hope that God keeps his word and that the promises he makes will be kept for all eternity. And that's why we believe we go to heaven through faith in Jesus. It's not because I've changed and I'm a good guy. It's because God's promises are sure. And he is a promise-keeping God. And that's the book of Joshua. And it's laid out for us in Joshua too, but you can't know it if you don't notice the repetition and go back to Deuteronomy. Repetition is always important. And it pushes you. It moves you to this beautiful picture of the lesson and the theme that the author wants you to get. So every time you're reading repetition, do your work. Notice it. Pay attention. Put it down. Do some research. And chase it to its end. And you will be amazed at at how the Bible comes alive. That is really a a great lesson about our God. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I am going to uh, read to you a psalm. I don't want you to read along with me. I want you to listen. There's a repeated theme in the whole psalm. And when I'm done reading it, I'm going to ask you what the theme is. And you're going to be able to identify that very clearly. And then I have another question, which I'm not going to reveal to you yet. But uh, don't read along with me. Just listen. Pay attention to this psalm and the use of repetition in this psalm. Okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, His love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. His love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. His love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. His love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. He remembered us 
in our low estate. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. What do you think the theme is? His love endures forever, doesn't it? Anybody have a question about that? All right, so, so that's the theme very clearly. Repetition gave you the theme, right? So how many verses did I read before you tuned out that that, that statement, his love endures forever, ended every phrase, not even every verse, every phrase, and you just kind of tuned it out and listened to the first part? How many verses did I read before you were focused on the first part instead of the, uh, uh, the theme verse? How many verses? Six. Anybody less? How many? Three. Can I tell you what Psalm 136 is teaching? It's a fabulous lesson taught through repetition. I was reading Psalm 136. After every phrase, you have a thematic statement, his love endures forever. And three or six verses in, you said, All right, I can take that for granted. I don't have to think about that one. You know why you can say that? Because his love endures forever. And if his love endures forever, you can take it for granted. You don't even have to think about it. It's always there. It's there if you think about it or not. It doesn't matter. And repetition not only gave you the theme, but it applied the theme to your life. You can take the love of God for granted. It's always there. And Paul in Romans 8 says, nothing will separate me from the love of God. You can, and I might say should, take it for granted. Repetition is the theme and the application. God wants you to know that nothing will separate you from his love. It will endure forever. It will never fail. So now you're teenagers. Uh, You guys are in the process of struggling with temptation in the most difficult time of your lives. This this teenage struggle is is not good. And I speak from a male's perspective. It's downright bad. Uh, The moral struggles that the world is going to face you with, the whole personal significant struggles that, that you have to grow up and grow through and you're going to fail time and time again. And you're going you're to hit a wall and you're going to say, man, alive, I don't even love myself. How can God love me? And God's going to come back and he's going to say, you can take it for granted. I will never not love you. You can be horrible. You can fail at every turn. And I'll be there. You are mine. Don't you just scream with a God like that? Nobody loves you like that. And you can take it for granted. And you should. Psalm 136. It's awesome. Repetition is this dynamic tool. If you follow it, it it just creates this sense of, of direction in a text that you have to chase down. It's just, it's just amazing to me when we do that. Okay, another one. 
And this is my final one here, and then we're going to shift and jump subject here for a minute. But general thoughts on identifying the theme. The uh, theme is most easily identified in the theological or doctrinal portion of the book. So if you are reading Paul's epistles or some of the other New Testament epistles, they tend to get divided between theology and practice, right? They tend to get divided where your theology is front-loaded and the practice of that theology comes in the back half of the book. It's especially true in Paul's letters in the New Testament and it's also true in Colossians. So this is going to help you finding those passages when you read Colossians. So Paul in his epistles front loads theology and then he back loads practice. When you're looking for the theme, you don't even have to worry about the back half. It's good to read for background material, but you don't even have to worry about finding the theme there because it's always going to be in the theological portion. The reason it's going to be there and not in the practical side is because the practical side is applying the theme. That theological theme fits into the way you live Christianly in this way. And so the theme has already been stated, it's already been developed, and now this is how you take that theme and live it out over here. So when you're looking for a theme, I don't want you to ignore the back half, but you can find the theme far more easily in the theological side of that book than in the practical side. So in Colossians, there's two chapters of theology and two of practice. I suspect next week when you come in, all of the passages you go, well, here's what he's talking about, are going to be in the first two chapters. And, and it's just going to happen. You're all going to do it if you do it, and you're going you're to go, oh, it's here, here, and here, and you watch. It's all going to be in one and two. Now, you might end up seeing a relationship in the last two chapters, but your theme will be identified in the first two. In Galatians, it's three and three. And um, the, the theme of Galatians, as I showed you when we went through it, was all repeated in chapters one and chapters two. When you get to the practice of the theology of the gospel, you show up in the back half with the practice, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the flesh, uh, you reap what you sow, those types of things are explanations of the theme. It always works that way. So the theme is most easily identified in the theological and doctrinal portion of the book. So when you come to the practical side, it's only going to make sense to you properly if you know the theology. So you never, you never try to, uh, I, sh I should be careful how I say this, you want to live Christianly, and so you want to practice Christianity. But the practice of Christianity needs to be founded on a theological foundation. And just because we live good lives and we look like Christians outwardly is not a good enough motivation for us to, to be Christianly in our behavior. We need the theological foundation of the first parts of these books. And so uh, the practical portion of all the books all the books in the Bible, the practical portion, where it's telling you how to live like a Christian, is all related to that theme. It's not independent application. 
They're all thematic in their applications. It's not just, well, so here's how you apply the Bible. Here's how you look like a Christian. No. You look like a Christian when you think like a Christian. And if you're not thinking like a Christian correctly, living becomes just external appearances. So your theology, the theological theme is in the front load of that, and the back half is applying it. This theme fits your life this way. Now when you do this, you also know why. One of the frustrations we have growing up is that people tell us what to do and don't explain it. God doesn't do that. He tells us why and then says, so therefore you do it this way. He's giving you a theological framework on which to build your life. That's important to us. And the Bible is, is set up that way. So uh, it's teaching what has already come in the past. Okay, so now I'm going to give you what I think is the, is the uh, key thought in all of this. Uh, <coughs> I don't know how, to, how else to say this. How do you identify an implicit theme? You read the whole book. Then you read it again. 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 You just read it. It's there. Do the work. You just have to read it and read it and read it. So again, study to show yourself approved unto God and, and do the work of reading it. Don't, don't feel the need to jump around. Learn a book and then move on. So that's my big, my big final push on that. Now, before we get into the second step of observation, I want to remind you of something I said early on in this book, uh, in this class, and that is that we're going to spend the bulk of our time on observation. I'm going to teach you to observe four things. Okay? It's now 2.15. We started at 8.30, and I've been talking to you about observing one thing, and that's themes, explicit and implicit themes. Everything I've told you has been how to identify those themes. That's one. There's four steps of observation. We're going to move from the theme to the next level, but we're still on observation. But notice, I have not even tried to teach you how to interpret the Bible. I haven't even tried to teach you how to correlate the Bible or even how to apply the Bible. I'm just teaching you how to find themes. Now, in the process of finding themes, some of that other stuff just falls into place because the more work you put into observation, the easier the stuff gets. Work at observation. Do the preparatory work, and the rest kind of falls for you. Really, it does. So we're still on observation, but now we're moving to the next level. So I'm trying to encourage you to start big and move small. Start with the largest literary unit and then move to the next largest literary unit. Now, when you were taught to write, you were taught that a composition consists of paragraphs all related to the subject and all dealing with one point. That's how you were taught. And when you write papers today, your teacher insists on that type of development. And you have to talk about this subject in paragraph form, and you move through that subject paragraph by paragraph by paragraph. Why? Because this subject 
gets developed in the next smallest units, which are paragraphs. One of the things we know about a paragraph is there's always one main point. We, we call it the topic sentence. Every paragraph has a topic sentence. It's all talking about one thing. And the sentence that captures that one thing is called the topic sentence. Every paragraph has one. Even the paragraphs in the Bible. So when you first of all open the Bible up, you're going to study a book of the Bible, you're going to look for that theme. And going through everything I've taught you now is going to be very helpful in identifying that theme. But even then, sometimes you say to yourself, I don't know if, I, if I'm sure of the theme. The next step you want to do, in either case, if you have identified it or if you haven't, is break the book down into paragraphs. So if we had more time, and when I teach this in a different setting, I go through with my audience and I say, we're going to study Colossians together, and we're going to work through Colossians, and we talk about the theme, and then my next assignment is, okay, identify the first three paragraphs in Colossians. Just identify them. Just figure out where the breaks come. That's my next assignment. And it would be with you if, if we had a lot of time doing this. Take this theme and show me how the author develops that theme in paragraph form. So that's what I want you to see. When you're moving big to little, you go from theme to paragraphs. And your job now becomes to find topic sentences or the main thoughts in the paragraph. So you have to figure out where the paragraphs start and where they end. So you want to identify paragraphs second. This is observation step two. And you move from the largest literary unit, which is the theme, to the next largest literary unit, which is the paragraph. That's what we're doing. It's how you were taught to write. It's how God communicates. So this is what uh, uh, Merriam-Webster says. A subdivision of a written composition that consists of one or more sentences deals with one point. So when you're thinking of a paragraph, all the sentences deal with one point. And there's a sentence in there that kind of captures that point, And that's the, the main thought in that paragraph. That's the topic sentence. It happens every time. That's how, that's how people write. That's what we have. And so what I want you to notice when you're dealing with paragraphs is that uh, uh, the, the paragraphs are going to move the thought of the book. Just like in your papers, what I did on my summer vacation, you went from June, July to August, if you did it chronologically, or you moved from the beach to the mountains to Disneyland or whatever it is you put in your paper. But you developed this theme in successive thoughts. That's all it is. A paragraph is moving in this direction like that. And it's taking the thoughts of the book and moving them forward. So uh, what I want to show you is what is called a graphic organizer. And I would encourage you to, to go online and, and, and look up graphic organizers. And, and this is a huge concept uh, to get. So I was teaching this class probably in the early 90s in my office. There was a bunch of local pastors coming, and I was trying to uh, mentor some of them. And I, was, I didn't know about graphic organizers back then. Um, so I was, I was 
uh, just showing them how I do my work. And I said, so here's your theme, and this paragraph starts here, and this paragraph starts here, and this paragraph starts here, and each of them have a topic sentence. And I, and I tr- was developing this, and I was doing it with my hands like I'm doing to you. And w- there was a teacher, and he said, well, that's a graphic organizer. I said, what's a graphic organizer? He said, well, go online. There's a lot of them. So I went online, and I went, there's a billion of these things. They're all over the place. There's all kinds of graphic organizers. So I started scrolling, and I said, which one grabs it for me? I went, that one. And I've been working with this model ever since I knew about graphic organizers. So I was teaching this class last week in my church in Gretna. And a lady asked me, when I was still on the themes, I haven't even got to the paragraphs, I was talking about implicit themes and how all the ideas relate. And she says, do you ever put them this way? And she drew that graphic organizer. With this hand, she had the theme, and she, she kind of went like this. And I went, yeah, but I can't talk about it yet because I'm not <laughs> that far in the class. Graphically, she was listening to me going, oh, I have to organize my paragraphs. Because paragraphs develop an idea and move it along. So this is a graphic organizer. And on this picture, you have a centerpiece for the theme. And I physically use this. One of the pastors I've taught actually introduces his sermons with this particular model. And this is how he catches his audience up to him every week. He puts the next topic sentence in that graphic organizer. So the theme goes in the middle. Paragraph one, let's say, is at 12 o'clock. And you would look at 12 o'clock, and you would say the first paragraph is pointing to the theme in this way. So if you were doing Galatians and you came to that first paragraph on the introduction and it talked about the author and it talked about the blessing, then you could put that up there and say it relates to the paragraph in this way. Now, the only thing that I would do that isn't on this graphic organizer is that I would also have a line that's connected to the second balloon, which is pointed at 2 o'clock. Because paragraphs do two things. They not only point to the theme, they lead forward to the next point. So if you're writing correctly, your first paragraph gets developed, but it moves you logically to the second paragraph. The second paragraph attaches to the theme, grows from the first paragraph, and leads to the thought of the third paragraph. Every time. God writes the same way. So when you start to identify paragraphs, This paragraph is going to lead to this one. And why it's important to study in this order is because if this is correct, and I believe it is, you can't jump into paragraph 2 or paragraph 3. You need paragraph 1 to understand how we got there. It's not good enough to open up your Bible and read Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Because you don't know how we got there. You might learn something from Galatians 4, 1-7, but you do not know how we got there. And the theological framework is missing. 
And so what you have to do is figure out the first paragraph, move to the second, because the first paragraph pushes you there. The second paragraph pushes you to the third, and each one of them is developing the theme every single time. So when you're reading a book of the Bible, you're going to first of all look for this major literary unit. And after you find the major literary unit, you start to move towards the paragraphs and how that subject gets developed. Now the advantage of this is also for this reason. Let's say you're in a book that has an implicit theme and you can't identify it. You've done all the work and you can't identify it. This also helps you identify the theme if you haven't been able to identify it because you'd leave the middle thing blank. You'd mean leave the, little balloon, the middle balloon blank, but then you'd look at the paragraph, and paragraph one is talking about this, and you'd identify the topic sentence. Paragraph two is talking about this, and you'd identify the topic sentence. And you would say, what connects the two? What thought led from this paragraph to this paragraph? And you are intelligent. God gave you a brain. And you'd be able to read it and go, oh, that's the connection. I wonder if it holds true for paragraph three. And if you could identify that movement, you would say, oh, that's the thread that unites the paragraphs. And the thread that unites the paragraph is the what I did in June, what I did in July, and what I did in August. Three summer months that connect the subject. It's really that simple. It just takes a lot of work. So this uh, gives you a pattern to follow to move from the top level to the next level. It also gives you a pattern to identify an implicit theme and, and Two further points. One of them is it also uh, helps with a check and balance system. So if I think the theme is X and I'm reading paragraph 1 and I go, yeah, that relates. Paragraph 2 relates. And I get to paragraph 3 over here at 3 o'clock and, and I all of a sudden go, well, this paragraph doesn't fit. I now know something's wrong because there are no extraneous paragraphs. All the paragraphs have to relate to each other and to the theme. And when one paragraph doesn't, then I've got a problem, and I've got a problem with my study, and I have to rework everything. So this actually helps you become correct. So if it doesn't work, the problem is with you, not with the text. And you have to say, oh, I have to rework my process because this paragraph doesn't fit or else my understanding of this paragraph doesn't fit and I have to rework the paragraph. But every paragraph points to the theme and they move forward around the circle. Every paragraph. So that's the second level. There's not nearly as much information there as I've had before, but I want to give you what I think is the absolute most important point in this subject, and it's this. There are no independent paragraphs. There are none. Every paragraph relates to the theme. There are no paragraphs inserted into any book of the Bible that don't matter. There are no paragraphs inserted into the Bible 
that don't belong. Every book of the Bible, every book of the Bible, is written with a paragraph development, and every paragraph fits in and develops that text. There are none that don't. So you can, A, identify the theme through the paragraphs, and secondly, you can identify, I mean, you can develop the theme around those paragraphs. And that is as sure as the day is long. Once, uh, I mean, just once for all, it's true. The paragraph breakdowns are consistent. I mean, are, are developing a theme, and there's not one of them is out of place. Not one. Again, that's why you study them in order. That's why you, you, you go around and you, and you figure them out in order.